Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. We just spent the last three episodes talking about the Chue dynasty, so it's understandable if you're all a little Chue'd out for the moment, or chode out. So in this episode, we're going to step away from the narrative a bit and speculate a bit on the origins of my favorite group of people from the Goryeo era, the Baekjong. How can I describe who they were? Outcasts, nomads, beggars, and gypsies. Hey guys, a quick note about that song you just heard. As you can probably tell, it's different from the clip that I normally play, and that's because I was trying to find some type of music that was most appropriate to our subject of this episode, the Baekjong. So I searched for music from the northwest of Korea, and this is what I came up with. And it's actually called Sado Sori, which means which means folk songs of the northwest Korea of Northwest Korea. Although I don't think they mean the true northwest of the peninsula. They they probably mean northwest of South Korea, which is basically the Seoul region. But you know, it's the closest I could, that I could find. The woman singing her name is Jang Hakson, and it was recorded like in the 1950s. And I love this song. It's so trippy. It's so different from anything I've ever heard before about Korean uh, folk music. So I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm going to put the rest of the song at the at the end of this episode if you want to listen to it more. And of course, I'm putting the link to the YouTube video that I got it from in the show notes. So I hope you enjoyed it. And on to the rest of the episode. Today, Baekjung in South Korea commonly means butcher. In fact, there's a hip Korean barbecue restaurant chain started by a famous comedian called Gang Hodong Baekjung. You may have been to one because lots of non-Koreans go. They have locations in Seoul, LA, and New York now. There's an hour wait, there's dance music blaring, and the young waitresses have piercings and blue hair. But what if I told you that the butchers in Korea can trace their ancestry back to the 10th century, when ethnic tribes from the north crossed the Yalu River to settle in the rich farmland of Korea? People have no idea about the rich history of that word association. In the incredibly homogenous society that is Korea today, people rarely think about race. But if you were raised in America like me, this subject is like catnip. Let's face it, Americans are obsessed with race and ethnicity, and I'm no exception. We're diverse, and we're getting even more diverse. So it's top of mind, to, to put it lightly. Which is why I am fascinated by the Baekjong. And full disclosure, I definitely have an American bias. Also, this podcast may be called The History of Korea, but there will be a fair amount of speculation in this episode. I'll do my best to note it where it occurs. So, once upon a time in Korea, Korea was multi-ethnic. The reason why we're talking about the Baekjong now, while we're discussing Korea, is that most historians believe that the root of the Baekjong goes as far back as the Goryeo period. To understand the Baekjong and their role in society, we first need to talk about the class structure in Korea. Everything I'm about to say I got from one short essay called, quote, A Study of the Korean Cultural Minority, the Baekjong, written by Dae Hong Jang in 1974. It was basically just a small chapter in a collection of historical studies collected by A.C. Nam. 
um, who is a professor or was a professor at Western Michigan University Center for Korean Studies. This was literally the only study that I found in English. So if you found any more recent studies, please let me know. Um, and if you're a Korean language speaker slash reader, you probably know a lot more about this. So hit me up on social media. I would love to hear the things I got right and probably mostly the things I got wrong about this. But it's a very short chapter that I read, but it's, it's packed with detail. Another disclaimer, and this is a huge one, is that I believe this essay is about the Joseon era. Uh, my friend Anthony, who's Korean-Korean, told me that the term for the nobility, yangban, didn't exist until the Joseon period, so that the correct term in Goryeo was probably guijo. So we kind of have to extrapolate from these social classes to the Goryeo period and assume that these classes must have had some provenance in the Goryeo era. So I guess when we talk about Baekjung, we'll, we'll be discussing Baekjungs in general, and that term was mostly used in uh, the Joseon period, um, although I think the records did show that there was mention of them prior to that. So we can divide Korean society into four main classes. The book doesn't have an exact date upon which this society applies, but I believe this class system evolved um, in the Shilai kingdom. At the top, you have the royalty or the wangjok. That's pretty straightforward. Next, you have the nobility or the yangban. The book says that they made up of uh, they were made up of around ten percent of the population, which I think is pretty high if you're going to call them upper class. But anyway, this is where things get a bit more complicated. The nobility officially had two branches: the dongban or civilian, and the saban or the military. And again, these terminology, th these terms um, from this essay that I read probably apply to the Joseon era. So back in the Goryeo period, although there definitely was a split between the civilian and the military branch, they might have been called something differently, especially when you're looking at historical documents. These two classes were supposed to be equal in level, but gradually the military became more of a subclass of the civilian, as according to Confucianism, which taught, quote, the subordination of arms to letters, unquote. And of course, that's what we found out during the last three episodes on the Chue dynasty. In fact, there's a famous saying in China that good iron is not used for nails, neither are good men used for soldiers. In other words, when you have good iron, you save it for more important purposes. And if you have a good man, you don't waste him on the military. You presumably save him for the civil service or something other, some other more worthy, quote unquote, worthy role. Now here comes a truly tricky part. As part of the as part of the Yangban, there is a subclass below the Dongban and Saban, or or what this work or what this essay called uh, Chonmin. And as another disclaimer, I haven't found anything on this via, via Google search or neighbor, especially because there's another class called Chonmin, which we will be discussing in a second. Another way to refer to the subclass is as guahakwan or technicians. These guys do all the petty official and technical administrative duties, such as recording daily activities of the king's court, accounting, interpreting foreign communications, ritual and ceremonial planning, art drawing, and also weather forecasting, medical work, road and highway surveying and construction, transportation, 
compilation of library materials. The Yangban were the leisure class and determined the manners and arts, basically the culture of Korea. They were wealthy landlords who determined the course of Korean history for many centuries. They were educated principally in Confucian classics. Women of the Yangban class were educated and spent a lot of time sewing, embroidering, and arranging flowers. They also learned to play musical instruments. The greater a woman's social standing, the greater her seclusion, and thus, the more she studied the arts. The Yangban supplied the government officials. This was based on the Chinese mode model of examinations held by the king every year. You had to pass a grueling set of exams, first at the village level, then at the province level, then next at the capital level, supervised by the king himself sometimes. You can see a lot of this still in Korea. Entrance into the top universities is almost strictly based on entrance exams. Even today, as in many countries, government officials in South Korea are taken from the top schools, including Seoul National, Yonsei, and Korea, or what, um, or what the South Koreans refer informally to SKY. Um, SKY is an acronym for Seoul National, Korea, and Yonsei. Graduates of Seoul National, the toughest university to get into, basically fill the ranks of the state judicial branches, foreign service, legislative, and so on. Below the Yangban were the commoners, or Sangmin. These are the working class, or the peasants. They were basically the backbone of Korea. They were involved in productive occupations, including agriculture, fishing, and mining. In times of war, they supplied the soldiers. And not only that, when there was a war, they supplied labor, transportation, food, and whatever else they needed. They paid the most taxes. In some cases, 50% of their harvest went to the state granary. Granary. But still, they had little rights. They couldn't wear silk. They couldn't build houses bigger than five rooms. They couldn't ride carriages. Sometimes there were curfews. They couldn't wear horsehair hats or eyeglasses. Well, at least in front of the Yangban. When they passed a Yangban in the street, they actually had to yield the right of way and sometimes even had to bow. Their kids couldn't attend Confucian village schools called Sotang. They couldn't even protest their grievances to higher government officials. They had to refer to themselves in a, in a deprecated manner when speaking with Yangban. On the street, they had to yield the right of way to the Yangban. They couldn't carry traditional smoking pipes or smile in front of the Yangban. During court, they were expected to remain kneeling the entire time. Now, finally, we come to what I think is the most fascinating social class, the Chunmin, not to be mistaken, make, uh, mistaken for the Chonmin, which we just discussed earlier. In a sense, this was kind of the catch-all category for anyone who wasn't royalty, nobility, or working class. So if you were a foreigner, or if you were a criminal stripped of your citizenship, or if you were an orphan without identification, you were dumped into the Chunmin class. And if you thought the peasants had it bad, the Chunmin were even worse off. The Chunmin class can get even more confusing, but I'll try my best to describe it to you. So according to De Hongzhang, there were two broad categories of Chunmin. The first were the slaves, or nobi. Within the slave class, there are two types of slaves. The first type of slave was 
gongchan or public slave. This means that you have slave status to the state. In other words, you have some sort of obligation to the state or to the public good. For example, you're a criminal serving out a sentence. Or sometimes really destitute families would sell themselves into being a public slave for subsistence. Sometimes a yangban who had committed some heinous crime would be demoted to this status, which I think is fascinating. I mean, can you imagine a former aristocrat who maybe slept with the wrong woman like the king's concubine and is then cast into slavery? Talk about a great movie idea. It's also notable that most of the Gongchan were ethnically Korean, so non-native or non-Koreans rarely became slaves, ironically. The second type of slave is Sachan, or private slaves. These are owned by the Yangban. These guys provided all types of services to their noble lords. All their house attendants, for example. Also, tenant farmers. They would, they would eventually be turned into kind of serfdom in the 16th century. So back to the top, we're talking about the fourth class, the lowest class, the chunmin. The chunmin are divided into two broad categories. We just talked about the first one, which are the slaves. The second category is occupational chunmin. Now, this gets even more complicated. There are two subcategories of occupational chunmin, public and private, just like the slaves. Public occupational chunmin include the following. Giseng. This is probably the most well-known category. Gizang are female performers. They almost exclusively provide services to the yangban. They range from cultured women all the way down to prostitutes. They are women of no means or low status who have to work for a living. They occupy the tea houses and the restaurants. They play instruments while you eat. They perform dances. They have sex with you sometimes. They keep you company when you're not with your wife. I have a lot of theories on who these women actually are, which I'll share when I talk about the Baekjong. But for now, just realize that officially, Giseng are registered to the state as a public chunmin. Especially in, in the cities, all citizens are registered and known to the local authorities. So Giseng is a, legitimate, a legitimately recognized profession. Giseng play a prominent role because they have access to the most in intimate places of very important noblemen. Even though they are lower than the working class, they have much better mobility across social lines. Other people in this category include Jong uh, or Nein, or servants, Yijok, or government service such as messengers, cleaners, and keepers, Yakchal, which means caretakers of travel stations and public restrooms. And the second subcategory of occupational chunmin are the private category. These include sangyo, or Buddhist monks and nuns, ryongin, private messengers, hejang, shoemakers, gosa, criminal executioners, butang, shaman, shaman ritual performers, sadang, graveyard and ancestral mountain keepers, Jane and Guangde, or traveling entertainers. And finally, we get to the final category, Baekjong. Now, even in a catch-all category, Baekjong is even another catch-all. It's like the Korean officials said, all right, we've categorized everyone we can think of, even the guy that cleans out the shitter in travel stations. What do we do with all the other riffraff? Let's just call him Baekjong. 
So let's go really deep into baekjeong. First of all, what do the words mean? Uh, I, I say plural because there are actually two characters there, baek and jeong. Of course, it comes from China. It comes from the Chinese characters of baek, meaning blank or white or pure or empty or the absence of something, and jeong, which means service or work or obligation. In Chinese, it is pronounced or rather romanized, and I'm probably going to butcher this, pai uh, ching. In Japanese, uh, they use the same characters, but pronounce it hakucho or hakute. So literally, baekjeong means a person who is not obligated to perform a service to the state. To our modern ears, that sounds pretty great. I don't have any obligation to the state. I'm a free man. But not really. What it really means is that you aren't a citizen. Because all citizens have an obligation to the state. As an example, in order to become naturalized as a citizen of the United States, you have to recite the Oath of Allegiance. And it goes something like this, quote, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in, ar- in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. Unquote. These are deep, important, symbolic words. And certainly the way I read it was probably a bit too nonchalant and uh, didn't do justice to the words, but they are they are very, uh, actually very beautiful, beautifully written, but they're also very practical words. But as a Baekjong, you don't have to promise any of that. So great, you're still saying, I don't owe my country anything. But it takes two to tango, because if you have no obligations to the state, the state has no obligations to you. It doesn't have to provide you emergency services or military protection. You're not entitled to the court system if someone wrongs you. You have no duties to the state, and so you don't belong to the state, and you have no recognized value to the state. That is an awful status to have. This is why so many immigrants in other countries that we shall not main find it so hard to adjust because they, they practically have no, uh, no way of becoming citizens. In China and Japan, the original meaning of the word zero obligation gradually became just another way to describe a commoner. In other words, someone without government obligation was just a peasant. But in Korea, um, as far as De uh Hon says, it became something else entirely. Baekjong became a designation applied to the worst in society, beggars and the homeless. It became not just a designation, but an entire social class, and it became a cultural slur. Why was it different in Korea than in China and Japan? I think the difference lies in the fact that Korea was truly a multi-ethnic place back in the last millennium. You may say that China was more ethnically diverse, which in a way was true. Of course, China had many more tribes and ethnicities to incorporate on an absolute basis. 
But on a per capita basis, China was still more homogenous back then than Korea. Think of the heart of China, the southeastern basin in which the Han and roughly 80% of the population still reside. It is absolutely densely packed with very homogenous people calling themselves the Han. So if there was like one new person on the block from Mongolia or Tibet or Vietnam, that person was still just a tiny fraction of the majority. Whereas in Korea, much smaller country, you have a couple of people coming from the north, from either a couple of Gitan or a couple of Malgal. Suddenly, a small country becomes very ethnically diverse. And Korea is much smaller physically, so incursions along its borders of the assorted nomadic tribes, including, like I just said, the Mongol, Jurchen, Mongols, Gitan, made a much bigger dent on the native population, quote-unquote native. And I use that term native very loosely because according to archaeology, native Koreans originated from the north, from around the Manchurian region. And because, let's face it, for even the millennia before then, there was a steady trickle of northerners crossing the Yalu River to settle in the much more hospitable climate of the peninsula. As for Japan, of course we know that once the many different ethnicities from the Hokkaido to Ryukyu gradually merged into one, there was little danger of foreign invasion during that period. Korea at the time had a much more serious race issue that it needed to deal with. Most historians, therefore, believe that the origins of the Baekjung originate in the Goryeo era around the 11th century. This coincides with the massive invasions of the Gitan Liao Empire at the time. Sadly, the Gitan, once a mighty empire, are one of the many nations that do not survive today. We can trace ethnicities, particularly near the North Korean border, and also way west near the western frontier of modern-day China, to the Gitan, using language. But for the most part, that culture only lives in the history books. Even their language is indecipherable. If you look at Gitan writing, it is basically Chinese characters, but they use it in a way that no one recognizes today. It's sad because I believe it was the Gitan that were the original Baekjang, and Disclaimer, this is where I start to speculate, based on what I've read so far. In the 11th century, the Lao Empire was a fierce nation living just north of the Korean border, spreading out across the steppes of Manchuria and modern-day Russia. Before the Mongols, there were the Gitan. They most likely shared the same type of culture. They were expert horsemen. They lived a nomadic existence, following their grazing horses and sheep across the plain. They drank fermented mare's milk. They had a shamanistic religion. As hunters, they ate lots of meat, including horse meat, mutton, and on occasion, dog. Sound familiar? The funny thing is that Koreans will often emphasize how much of their culture came from China. Buddhism, literature, art, music, etc. But existing alongside Buddhism was shamanism. And for every ritualistic court instrumentation, there was folk music with body lyrics and references to nature. And you know, Buddhism strictly enforces a vegetarian diet. And you'll see plenty of vegetables in Korean food today. In fact, there's a cuisine that we call hanjongchik, which basically means traditional Korean food. If you go to that kind of uh, restaurant, for example, it, it is modeled after what all the kings ate at court. Tons of elaborately prepared vegetables, bean cakes, 
lovely rice cakes. It, it's almost exclusively vegetarian. Then how do we explain the proliferation of Korean barbecue? Why are Koreans equally in love with huge chunks of pork, beef, and chicken meat fired over a primal flame? How do we reconcile that with proper Buddhist-inspired court food? I believe Baekjong provide one answer. Just like every country has classical music and folk music, so does every country have hot cuisine or haute cuisine and peasant food. Korean's high cuisine comes from China. In the same way, I believe Korea's comfort food, its peasant food, comes from non-Chinese who cross the border from the north. And I believe much of that influence comes from the Baekjong. In other words, the Baekjong are the Gitan as well as assorted northerners. In the 10th century, the Lao Empire attacked Korea just like they attacked China. Their goal, however, was not to make China or Korea a colony. Their goal was to assimilate their own people into Korea and China. It's obvious why. It's obvious why. As powerful as their military was, their way of life did not compare favorably to an agrarian society. Infant mortality, lifespan, technology, all of these things were worse in the steps. Living season to season, depending on the health of your livestock, having to uproot your family every few months, not to mention the brutality of the fighting among the tribes. This isn't conjecture. The tribesmen of Mongol and Gitan and Jurchens are on record saying that once they conquered China and Korea, they would settle their wives and daughters in the capital so they too could learn how to read and sow and farm. Again, another disclaimer that what I'm about to say is, is my speculation. But I want to explain how I think the Gitan were the first Baekjong and how the term Baekjong came to be a derogatory term. The Gitan called their empire the Lao Empire, and during that time, they invaded Goryeo three times. The histories say that they sent 800,000 men the first time. Now, this is most likely an exaggeration, but it was a huge army. Goryeo and Lao went head-to-head three times from 993 to 1022. That's almost 30 years. 30 years of war. Each time ending in a treaty, since both sides suffered so many losses. At one point, Goryeo adopted the Lao calendar, which is basically like saying that you agree to become a tribute of that kingdom in exchange for peace. But remember, the Lao Empire never conquered Korea. Being a tributary of a nation is not akin to being conquered. In fact, quite the opposite. If a people conquer you, then there is no tribute. There is a full-on assimilation into their empire. Agreeing to be a tribute of Lao was... Obviously, a concession by Goryeo, it's not the same as winning the war. But it's a concession by Goryeo because they were the smaller power, or recognition that they were a smaller power, or they just didn't have um, the willingness to have most of their population die, (laughs) as perhaps some of the tribesmen were. But it's also a concession by the Lao that they weren't strong enough to conquer Goryeo fully. It's a peace treaty a bit of a compromise that is a bit more weighed towards the Lao side. Goryeo respected Lao, but it didn't adopt Lao, which left the door open, which becomes important later. I believe Korea has downplayed the Lao's influence on Goryeo during that time, mainly because the Gitan are no longer around. I mean, let me let me restate that. I don't think they downplay the Lao's influence. I think just that's the way history works. If your culture doesn't survive until the present day, 
it's just forgotten. What are the cultures that we do remember today in Korea? Well, China and Japan, because those nations still exist. But the Mongols and the and the Jurchens and the Lao, they're not going to get the credit. But I believe the Gitan had much more influence than for which they are given credit because of that. For example, the Lao gifted the Lao Tripitaka to Gordia. The Tripitaka is basically the Buddhist scripture. At the time, it was a monumental undertaking for a small army of monks to write the Buddhist canon in any form. The job itself was considered a holy act because it involved such painstaking, tenuous labor. It was so big a task that only a kingdom could fund such an undertaking. Lao gifted this to Gorya. This was before the Tripitaka Koreana, still considered one of the cultural pinnacles of Gorya and Korea in general. Korean architecture was influenced by the Lao. So we know that these wars between Gorya and Lao caused, or at least were associated with, lots of cultural and, let's face it, blood intermixing. It's clear that Korea had lots of respect for the Lao at the time because it affected their Buddhism and their architecture. But guess what happened after 1022 when the final peace treaty was signed with Lao? Well, Song China came knocking. As I talk about in my last podcast, or in one of my other podcasts, what would follow would be one of the greatest transfers of enlightenment ever in Korean history, or maybe even Asian history, what we call the golden age of Goryeo-Song relations. Now, as great as the Lao are, they don't hold a candle to the 4,000 years of Chinese history that the Songs brought with them. The Lao were young upstarts with a powerful military. But the Song represented the, the most advanced civilization in the world at the time. So the Lao are out of fashion, and China is back in the mix in a big way. Just to give you an idea, in 1114 and again in 1116, the famed Emperor Huizong of Song sent Goryeo a gift of over 428 court musical instruments, along with the detailed instructions on their use and the music. Now, that may not sound impressive until you realize what a massive undertaking that is. The cost alone would be comparable to the United States gifting Korea with a large part of the Library of Congress. I believe I read that several huge ships were built specifically for the purpose of transporting all those instruments. So again, it was a huge project and it was so big that the emperor would take extensive criticism from the most famous Chinese politicians and thinkers of the day. And that wouldn't be the last time that China would almost bankrupt its state in support of Korea. This would happen again during um, the defense of Korea against the Japan uh, in the 16th century. These instruments did not just represent music. They represented the height of China itself. At the time, China used court music as a symbol for the best of its culture. China considered its court music, its instruments, the arrangement thereof, and all the ritual associated with it as a pinnacle of its intellect, artistic prowess, craftsmanship, science, and statesmanship. Kind of reminds me of um, Mozart back in the day. Mozart's music, deceptively friendly to listen to, right? But genius at its core. Had all types of hidden symbolisms based on his philosophy and his philosophy of the world, which itself came from this incredible cultural zeitgeist of that era of Europe. It was like the pinnacle of Europe at the time. 
The gift deserves an episode of its own, so I won't go on about it, although I just did. But let's just say it was very expensive, very precious, and hugely symbolic. And let's also say that it wasn't just because the Chinese liked the Koreans. There was definitely a real state statesmanship motive there. Because at the time, the Song were trying to curry favor with the Koreans so that they would side with them against the rising and very dangerous Jin Empire. You know, Professor David King at USC um, often says that when you look at a map of Asia at the time, during this period, Korea actually looks much bigger than it actually is in physical reality, mainly because the Korean Empire was a force to be reckoned with. Um, Because China was split between North and South for much of that period, it it was almost like Korea was kind of the third power, Um, you know, maybe not completely equal, but certainly deserved to be mentioned alongside them in equal stature. I mentioned this for a reason, because along with importing cultural treasures and scientific advancements from Song, Goryeo also imported that famous haughty Chinese attitude. You know the one, what the Chinese call the Hua Yi dichotomy, which says that China is civilized and the rest of the world is barbaric. Goryeo must have picked up this attitude. How could you not after drinking from the fire hose that is a Song dynasty? That's why I believe the origins of the Baekjong happened during the Golden Age of Song Goryeo. This is speculation on my part, but here's what we do know. Fact. By 1125, the Lao Empire was on the ropes. Just as quickly as it had risen to power, what, less than 200 years prior, it was quickly losing it to the next bullies in the neighborhood, the Jin Empire, formed by the Jurchens, or what we call today the Manchurians. And by the way, the Manchurians were actually not horse, horsemen or tribesmen like the Khitan or the Mongol or the Mongolians. They were actually kind of a rudimentary agrarian society. But I digress. We also know that two distinct sects of Khitan split from the Laoning Peninsula. One large group migrated westward, eventually forming the, the Kara-Gitai Empire. Another group of refugees headed south into Goria, seeking refuge. The remaining Gitan are now subject are, are now subjugated by the Jurchens in the Jin Empire, and they are miserable. So, in twelve sixteen, a massive group of ninety thousand Gitan invade North Korea, Northwest Korea. Invade is kind of the wrong terminology to use. That sounds like it's an army. No, those ninety thousand Gitan are a nation of people, men, women, and children. It's like an entire tribe or country of people just moving en masse trying to escape the Jurchens. They are driven back by a joint Mongol and Goryeo force. I talk about this in, um, in, in future episodes of the Mongol in, uh, invasion. And many historians, historians believe the remnants of this invading party formed the origins of the Baekjong. My theory is that these poor refugees must have formed the basis of the modern-day Baekjong. By then, Goryeo had quickly forgotten about the mighty Lao Empire, and had adopted all the sophisticated stuff from the Song. They must not have looked too fondly upon these refugees who were the same people who had so brutally attacked them a century earlier. So these semi-nomadic, warrior-type people were tolerated into Korea society, but were relegated as outsiders. Don't get me wrong, the pretty young women were probably accepted just fine 
as Gizang, but the others became the underclass of Korea. Now back to the meat eaters. We know that in 1170, Xu Jing, an envoy from the Song, who, whose uh, whose um, book about his visit is now a famous classic, would visit Gezang and remark on how little meat the Koreans ate. He would re- remark on how clumsily the butchers would clean an animal carcass for consumption, as if they had not had lots of practice in it. I quote from Sam Vermeersh's excellent translation of Xu Jing's original account. Quote, The barbarian government is very humane. Due to their fondness for Buddhism, there is an injunction, injunction against killing. Therefore, except for the king or high ministers, nobody eats mutton or pork. They are also not good at slaughtering. Ten days before the envoys came, they gathered the livestock, and when the time came to use them, they tied their four legs together and threw them into a blazing fire. After they had died and the fur burned off, they were doused in water. If they revived, they were beaten to death with a cudgel. After that, they cut open the belly and pulled out the intestines and bowels, draining all the dung and offal. Even though the carcasses are made into a broth or the meat broiled, the foul stench does not disappear. This is how clumsy they are. Unquote. By the way, you got to read Xu Jing's account um, in the original. Well, I mean, in the translated original. At times, he's praising Korea. At, uh, at other times, he's got that, that famous haughty Chinese attitude, always comparing always comparing Korea to his hometown of uh, uh, Kaifeng, um, or Hangzhou, I should say. It's great. It's almost like, uh, it's, 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 it reminds me of what a New Yorker says every time they go to any other city in America. They're always constantly comparing that city to New York. And, you know, most of the time, it's not going to compare favorably, let's face it, right? And the, and the Song Dynasty at the time was kind of, like I said, the pinnacle of cultural society. This is why the Baekjong were butchers, because these Gitan refugees brought their meat-eating habits to Korea. They were horsemen. Like the Mongols, they relied on their horses for everything, including transportation, clothes, and food. More than the native Koreans, they knew how to slaughter animals. Dehong Zhang writes that some of these Tungusic people settled into communities in Korea and became farmers. They assimilated into Goryeo society. Others must have had a tougher time of it. They might have stuck to their hunting and gathering ways. It's totally conceivable given the wilderness of Goryeo at the time and the very mountainous terrain. Although Goryeo had a sophisticated surveillance system in which land was recorded and assigned to prefectures, there were large swaths of wilderness still untamed, in which these Tungusic people could have subsisted much like they did in their home country, by hunting and then selling the meat in villages. So we've come full circle. The Baekjeon did jobs that no self-respecting Buddhist Korean would do, including anything working with animals. Slaughtering animals, leather making, these kinds of dirty duties were avoided by Koreans and so were filled de facto by Baekjeon. And here's where Japan and Korea share something in common. Just like in Korea, Japan traditionally was Buddhist and traditional Buddhists don't slaughter animals. So the Baekjeon of Japan, the Eta, or the Budakumin, did it for them. And to this day, the, the Japanese slaughter industry is dominated by descendants of that once quote-unquote untouchable class.
And here's where I get really speculative. But tell me if I'm crazy or not. I've always been curious about a very few particular peculiar dining habits in Korea that you don't find in China or Japan. First, there's the whole obsession with charcoal slabs of beef. That's definitely Tungusik. But also the Korean habit of sharing soup from the same bowl. You don't see that anywhere. If you go to a Korean barbecue place, there will often be one large stone pot of bubbling dengjang jjigae, which is fermented tofu soup, and spoons for everyone. You're all supposed to dip your spoon into the communal soup and eat it. It's notable because it doesn't quite meet the hygienic standards of really anyone, including China and Japan. I mean, I've never seen that in China and Japan, unless it was a mistake or unless it was a very um, uh, kind of a, a street stall or something like that. And certainly you don't see that in the West. And yet there it is. I have to believe that these things come from the Tungusic uh, tribes up north. Here's where I got this idea. When you read the accounts of the Mongols from outsiders, they often remark on the Mongols' very particular table manners or lack thereof. The Mongols were known to hack off a huge slab of meat from a carcass using a huge knife. They'd stab the meat with a knife, tear a chunk off with their teeth, then pass the knife to the next guy. They all eat it together. Communal meat on a stick, as it were. Now think of how Genghis Khan's father, Yesuge, died. A rival chieftain offered him a bowl of fermented mare's milk, and out of custom, he couldn't refuse it. Unfortunately, it was poisoned and Yesuge died. Communal fermented mare's milk drunk out of the same bowl. And it makes sense. Hygienic practices of separating food for each diner is based on social urban, communicable diseases. In a nomadic tribe, it was less likely that your dining companion had smallpox because your companion was probably your relative sleeping in the same tent. This is my speculation, of course, but it makes sense to me. Korea is really a mixture of the highbrow China and the barbarian Tungusic tribes. So the next time you're in a Korean barbecue place, raise a toast to the Gitan and the other Tungusic tribes people that we think were extinct, but actually survive as Koreans. Look at, their, look at your Korean waitstaff or your Korean dining partners and wonder if they are descendants of the ethnic minorities that first came to Korea in the 12th century. So I hope you enjoyed this short trip through the Korean class system and also some of my speculation. And I'm sure... You have a lot of opinions about it. So feel free to reach out to me on social media and let me know if you have any uh, any new thoughts and new information on anything that I've discussed. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) 북에는 혈무기요 남미는 주자이요 서에는 백기로다 주하에는 방기를 거고 오방기지를 통서 사방으로 바르르르르 어리워 거고 
합창 학대 뛰고 다네 올라동남 구필연 후에 단하를 구보보니 강상으로도 동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동동